Hey everybody, welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thanks for tuning in. I'm glad that you are here, however it is that you found the show, whether it was on YouTube or through a Google search or iTunes or Revelations Radio Network or the Revere Radio Network or Black Vault Radio Network. I'm really happy that you're here. So you can go to my website, nowheretorunradio.com and there it's sort of a hub, a hub for all the things that uh, I'm doing and you can contact me there as well as comment uh, you can log in there and comment on uh, the different shows and stuff like that. So, hope to see you around there. And uh, Skype, I'm on Skype. I was on Skype a majority of the earlier part of the week, but I seem to have forgotten to be on there. The latter part of the week, hopefully I will remember to do that after this show. And my name on there is Chris.White1984. That is Chris.White1984. Okay, so... This is still Nowhere to Run 2.0. I know I sort of deviated from that format a little last week because I was trying to um, rant about uh, the Catholic thing that I was talking about and it ended up being about an hour-long show, so I just quit there and didn't go into the emails or the or the news section. So I'll try to do a little bit extra of that this time. So I've got a lot to cover, so we'll just jump right into the announcements. A lot of people asking about Frank and Chris show, when that's coming back on, and stuff like that. Although Frank and I haven't uh, set a specific uh, time, the original idea was that it, it would start up again after my honeymoon, which would put it about the 1st of September, somewhere around there. But that might change. We might start up before, we might start up later, not 100% sure. But I do know that it should be a really exciting uh, good thing and that uh, everything should be like 100% better. It should be like Frank and Chris uh, 3.0 could just skip 2.0 because it was so, uh, you know, so awesome or something. Uh, also, verse by verse Bible teaching, that's still going to be a weekly show. I know it's been, we've been skipping like a week uh, last last few weeks. Partially it had to do with moving. This week has been a little hectic. And the weeks before that was uh, Mike was at the conferences and stuff. But hopefully we will have all that figured out and really start to get on a week-by-week basis with that. It is something that we both uh, really like doing. So uh, so stay tuned for that. I, I'm, I'm having a good time going through the book of Galatians. And uh, it's been, I don't know how many episodes we've done now. Probably like... Um, Oh, I don't know, probably seven or something like that. It's been some of the best times I've ever had, and I really feel like I know the book of Galatians so much better, and it's just been just been awesome. I can't wait to go into other books. We're still not 100% sure what we'll do when we finish Galatians. If you have any suggestions, we'd be happy to hear them. Okay, so next thing announcement is Richard Bennett. Uh, he uh, We got postponed. That, that interview got postponed, so um, he had some something going on there was a the pope was visiting london i think and he was organizing a a uh, thing where people were handing out tracks at the event and stuff like that so it got postponed actually we don't have a date for that postpone now that i think postponement now that i think about it so we'll do that a little quick um quick correction from the last show seventh day adventists uh, i said that or it wasn't the last show it was the show before that i said that uh, they believe that the Mark of the Beast is uh, Sunday worship. But I was corrected in that they don't believe it's Sunday worship. They believe that it will someday be uh, the Mark of the Beast when everybody is apparently forced to uh, worship on Sunday. And so 
My contention still remains, though, that I feel that uh, it is illogical based on the fact that the Sabbath was about work, not about worship. If it was going to uh, be anything, it would seem that um, that they would have to change it and say that everybody had to work on Saturday, which would be really the how you would get everybody to uh, not to worship on Sunday. That seems a little backwards there. If you're going to get people to try to not not uh, do the commandment there but you know whatever i've got some other problems there too but hopefully i will make a little more clear my stance on seventh-day adventism i'm hoping hoping to put out a video pretty soon about that it's in the works uh, still waiting on some permission to use some audio and stuff like that so hopefully that'll all pan out here pretty soon a few other things just saw frank put up a video there at his youtube page wise as serpents tv and you can go to youtube.com slash TV. Just put up a really good video call about the WikiLeaks thing. And let's see here. A few other things. Hopefully, I'll be starting a new... Well, it's actually going to be an old blog uh, slash podcast, which is the Full Armor of God at Podomatic. That is also... You can get that feed as well as the on the Revelations Radio Network. Just for the record there, if you subscribe to the Revelations Radio Network feed on iTunes, you will get... Not every time I do a show on any particular thing, it goes out on that feed. So if I do a show on uh, Full Armor of God, which is pretty much for the foreseeable future going to be just me posting sermons on there that I like because I'm always listening to different things and sermons and everything. So uh, when I find something I particularly like, I'll post it on that. Uh, on that, And it's, you know, just about an hour long. Uh, or if I post something from verse-by-verse -verse Bible teaching or whatever, it all it all goes in that same feed as well uh, as the Frank and Chris show when that comes back up. So that's a good thing to do if you're not already to subscribe to the Revelations Radio Network feed. Okay, uh, also, let's see, I guess I have here forums I was talking about. Oh, yeah, speaking that I uh, have been going, back in the old days, I used to go to the conspiracy forums and stuff like that and used to cause all kinds of trouble by posting uh, the videos that I would make or something else, you know, something, some idea about why we were, you know, they were wrong and, you know, not necessarily about the conspiracy stuff, but how that they were... Um, you know, being led into the mystery religions. And so I was doing that again. And I realized how much fun I was having doing that and how much of a heart I really do have for uh, those folks. And, uh, you know, what what a strong delusion that is over them with this, uh, you know, not all of them, of course, but a big, strong something is deluding them. It's funny, nowadays a lot of people know that stuff like Zeitgeist is, you know, was, uh, was false or that uh, Jordan Maxwell and Michael Tassarian and and people like that, you know, David Icke are, you know, not very truthful most of the time. But what's really taken its place is this sort of apathy about it. Like, yeah, I know. I know. It's cool. I still like it. Okay. See you later. I mean, what can you do to that? I mean, it's like, okay, gotcha. See ya. Um, no, I, I think that that is, that is a really, it's not an apathy. It's sort of like an acceptance of it, but a still desire to keep it anyway. You know, I know it's broken, but I like it. So, see ya. Anyway, the... Moving on. So, well, this is kind of like announcement, so it's not really moving on. It's moving on a little. It's it's ma mainly about what, what I've been... Did decide to do with the Catholicism thing, which is 
to instead of uh, abandoning the project altogether, which was the the big super Catholicism debunked doctrine uh, debunkathon. Um, instead of doing that, I decided I was going to just focus primarily on apostolic succession, which is sort of the heart of everything, and that'll probably be a pretty extensive video on itself, probably about an hour long or so, because it will take uh, at least that long to go from the beginning to the end of that, from Peter to the Church Fathers, and describing the absence of apostolic succession without, you know, with really understanding the uh, the ideas, you know, the, the retorts and the apologists, and, and trying to do it with some sort of um, understanding and love because I think that's what's missing with a lot of the Catholic apologists out there. The primary Catholic apologist is named James White and man, that guy has no love in his heart and he's wrong about a lot of stuff and and it, it's just the worst possible thing for a lot of Catholics to, to be met with that is their you know, only option for, you know, decent apologetics in it you know that's that's being fair and that under, and so hopefully if it's done right it is a, still a little bit overwhelming because but it's getting less so i think the more that i'm learning and uh, i decided to do that only really recently when i had previously decided after the last show that i was just going to sort of abandon the topic i thought maybe i'll just say everything i've got right now or close to everything and then at least on that topic and then and then maybe I'll just feel like I've, I've did enough on that, but it didn't really go away. But I decided I was going to just do, at that time I decided I was going to just do the testimonies thing, using Richard Bennett's hour-long testimonies, cutting them down to a usable sort of 20 minutes, and then connecting them all together, and then dividing those into 10 parts or whatever parts, and, and YouTube, and then making that a separate sort of thing, 101 Catholic testimonies, or ex-Catholic testimonies, or something like that. Could would be 101, obviously, but, um, but then I typed, I, I really felt like I should do something else, I typed into a Google search engine, um, something about, like, uh, Lord, what should I do? I feel really, I feel like I should still do the Catholic thing, but I'm still, you know, I'm still wondering if I, if I should, and could you just tell, please tell me what to do or whatever. <laughs> I know that is not, don't do that. That's not, it's not a way to hear from the Lord. It's not casting lots. It's not, but that's just what I did. And, uh, and I didn't have any of the keywords that had anything about other than Catholic and, uh, doctrine. Uh, uh something came up that I ended up using, which was a an article on uh, apostolic succession, which is exactly the same thing that I had been, uh, you know, working on. So I figured, okay, well, I'll just go ahead and, and do it. I kind of wanted to anyway, so. Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about emails and some of the new stuff. But first, before I do, I wanted to mention this little sort of rant issue, which is about um, people at work or whatever, people that annoy you, people that you don't see are in any way lovable or that make you mad perhaps they're like the cause of your bad day at work or you're they they are the reason you don't like to go to some place or whatever they're your like arch enemy in your head it might even be somebody that you know it could be your spouse it could be something like that so if you have 
a high, you know, a, a, a arch enemy in your mind. It might not be for real in any tangible way that we think of the word enemy. But if if you have somebody like that, I would suggest that there is an interesting way of dealing with that in the Bible, and that is, uh, well, to love your enemies. But I'm going to read a few verses here. First, in Matthew 5, verse 44, a very uh, well-known one. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Well, that is a pretty hefty sort of way to live. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 35 says, But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for no nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. That's an interesting too, because it says, what do you do to your enemies when, when you love them? How do you love them? Lend, that you uh, hoping for nothing again, so you're giving to them. Which is also sort of the remedy uh, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is the a Jewish person, which was more or less uh, Samaritans, uh, or you know, uh, somebody who lived in Samaria would be uh, the uh, enemy of the individual, but but he picks him up and he you know when nobody else would he picked him up he brought him to an end he uh, pays for all his stuff he tells the people there hey if this guy needs anything else take it out of my account I'll come back next week and pay you everything um, so this is a guy that 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 loved him in a tangible way that and, it, and then what does he say at the end of that parable he says now go ye and do likewise you know that's what that's what we should do now um, just before I move on, well, let's move on to the next verse, which is in Romans 12, verse 14, which, which says, Bless them that persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that rejoice. Weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one towards another. Set not your mind on high things, but con uh, condescend to things that are lowly. Be not wise in your own conceits. Here, Here's the part that... Uh, is important. Render to render no man evil for evil. Take thought for things honorable in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as in you lieth, be at peace with all men. Avenge not yourselves, beloved, but give place unto the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance belongeth to me. I will recompense, said the Lord, saith the Lord. But if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him to drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So, um, I would say, is anybody out there overcome with evil? And I know it's really easy to do because uh, whenever Satan sees that you've got something that really, really makes you mad, or that even just slightly annoys you, if he sees like, that's it, that's something we can really work on, guys. Everybody, listen up, team meeting. Whenever we see that she or he is looking at that thing or person that makes them mad, I want everybody on that person whispering, uh, you know, can you believe they, they would do that to you? Or can't you believe that they would do that thing again? They always do that thing or make that noise or whatever. It's just like a full force attack because they, they, they're all like watching back, like watching you looking and seeing the, the anger that's building. And they're like, yeah, you know, because you can, um, you can really, they, it says, you know, 
a foothold to the devil is created because of anger. That is, um, that's an important thing for them. That's a, that seems to be a, uh, a rule of thumb. So they, they have a vested interest, I guess is what I'm trying to say, in getting you angry. But, but anyway, my point is this, that I think that we underestimate sometimes our ability in the prayer for our enemies and what that means and what that, uh, seems like I would suggest or what, what it would do to not only your enemy, but to you, because if you're praying for somebody, then it automatically presupposes that you care for them. If you're asking God for stuff for them, it's really hard to ask God to help somebody and to have searing hatred for them at the same time. I think that God see one of the things that helps me when I uh, am thinking about stuff like this, or you know, somebody that really uh, is is you know annoying me or whatever that god sees them as not the the evil person at work that's so annoying or mean to you or whatever god sees them as the little child you know that um sees all the things that that brought them to that point you know all the things in their family and their history and the stuff that they saw and whatever that that made them be who they are he sees them as like a little child with a big suit on, you know, and I think it's helpful to sort of see that too, that they are that way because of something, you know, and it's pretty much a guarantee that if they are that way, there's probably a good chance that they're not a Christian, which brings me to the second part of this uh, mini rant, which is prayer as evangelism. A lot of you are not uh, like me. You don't you don't feel like you know evangelism isn't your your thing, and that's totally cool. It says many times in, in the Bible about the different gifts of the Bible uh, in the in the body, and you know some people are ear, some are eye, blah blah blah. So what I do think though is that some of you may be evangelists and not really understand or know uh, know a particular tool that you have, which is prayer. I watch a lot of testimonies and the it, it's the the main consistent thing and I've said this a million times but is that you will hear people say well somebody was praying for me or uh you know I found out later that some that the whole church was praying for me or you know there's always that element in a lot of these testimonies and I bet for everyone that doesn't somebody doesn't mention that element there is you know somebody behind the scenes that was praying for them I think that it I've seen it and enough testimonies to say that there is a major impact on prayer and these people's you know unlikely conversions. So what I would suggest is that that is our huge weapon is to pray for the unsaved. And I've been thinking about how to try to I know a lot of us have unsaved family members and a lot of uh, especially unsaved family members and people that are really close to us. I'd like to try to start some sort of situation website or something where people could put up, you know, the people that they need to be prayed for, you know, specifically for unsaved family members or something that people could just, you know, put their people on there. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know how that would be organized or whatever. It would probably be hard because you wouldn't want people to put their, you know, full names on there or anything, I don't guess. So I don't know how that all work out, but I really think that, uh, that at least, that's the best that we can do is to 
pray for the people that we need uh, that we would like to be saved and then ask other people to pray for them too I think that's really great that a lot of people uh, send me their prayer requests about you know somebody needs to be prayed for or whatever because it shows to me um, a kind of obedience that I bet God notices you know that he's like wow they really they really have faith in that in that and I think that's sort of kind of like you know stepping out in faith is to ask other people to pray for your unsaved loved ones and stuff like that and it certainly couldn't hurt anything uh, in any way so just thought I would bring that one to a close there and move on to emails so let's go ahead and do that okay the first one is about meditation somebody was asking about it uh, for a specific reason but I thought it might be a good time to just discuss it in general for everyone else so uh, meditation, I've had a lot of opportunities to talk with people that to do meditation for various reasons. And I think that the primary thing is that it's part of a truth. And like anything else, it's got a, it's mostly a lie. Um, the truth I think is that everything you can get from, well, no, that's not true. There is something supernatural that's happening with meditation, but I'll get there in a minute. Um, the truth part of it is that uh, if you spend time, let's say if you spend an hour a day in prayer versus an hour in, a day in meditation for the purpose of just relaxing your mind or, or whatever, there are benefits for, uh, you know, concentrating on, on different things or, or lack of concentration, I guess, in this, in this case, would be part of it. There are certain benefits for having quiet time, I guess, but if you look at those benefits of what you would be doing in regards to prayer, like for a Christian is specifically, I guess who I'd be talking to, uh, somebody that's still trying to hang on to a lot of the stuff that was in the new age or whatever, but you know, has become a Christian or whatever. I would say, take that meditation time and convert it into prayer time. Because if you think about it, you've got an audience with the throne room of the universe. The, the guy who created everything, the guy who, um, you know, can do anything that can make anything happen in your life that's listening to you and cares about you and has an unlimited amount of love and power to change your situation or, and to change those around you situation. So that's who the, 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 the kind of power that you're, you're tapping into. <laughs> I mean, with that, of course, it's a different type of power. It's a power that's, that's achieved in humility the direct opposite of a power achieved by your own sweat and blood and how much time that you labor in meditation, even though, you know, of course, some people wouldn't describe it like that. But the the picture I'm trying to paint is that a lot of times that I talk to people that have done meditation, there's a sense that they, um, there's a sort of elitist mentality because they've worked really hard on their enlightenment. And so while, you know, if you asked a Buddhist, the reason that you they would be doing meditation is to get rid of the ego. But ironically, the harder that you work on your spirituality, spirituality, um, the more it builds up your pride, because you start to think, "Well, I'm getting so spiritual now. I'm like I'm like the most spiritual person in the world. I meditate three times a day. I go to this. I do that. I do that. I wear all the right things and eat all the right food. I am the most spiritual person in the world." And you're and you're getting, but anyway, that's besides the point. Sort of sidetracked thing. My point, main point in that section was that uh, that spend the time with the Lord if you're a Christian, and um, yeah, that's much better. And it 
reaps all the benefits, the the natural benefits that one could say meditation. You know, the apologetic argument for for meditation is always something like, well, it's you know being restful and just being quiet for an hour, or whatever. Yeah, you do that in in prayer too, and you can be a lot more effective and a lot more dangerous uh, to the world as well, uh, because as we mentioned, prayer is sort of our our major nuclear weapon in this. That that the Lord says we can move mountains with it. The Lord says that ask anything and you should receive it. You have not because you ask not. This is this is what we need to be doing with our time, not just being idle. There's the other side of meditation, though, which is um, which is the sort of demonic uh, playground sort of thing, and this happens because of lots of different reasons. I see meditation as sort of the ground level uh, for well-meaning people to begin to get um, demonic. Uh, attachment it's sort of it's the most benign thing that can happen uh to get people started in a situation uh that will eventually lead to demonic uh stuff it it, it most often doesn't right at first because this is i'll give you a traditional sort of way that it happens with people is that somebody reads a book sees a youtube video blah 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 whatever goes to a conference see and and or just starts thinking about meditation as a good idea. They start doing regular meditation, which is, you know, just being passive, trying not to think about anything, try to make, try to think about nothing. Essentially, there's more to it, obviously, but that's the basics. And, you know, there's lots of good reasons they say why to do that and everything. Um, And eventually, over time, if you do stick with it, there will be something that sort of validates it semi-supernatural experience that th- uh or possibly physical uh but primarily slight tinge of supernatural experience because this is what's happening behind the curtain you're being extremely passive you know humans uh are the only way that i know of that a demon from their dimension can have access to this dimension that's why they're so concerned about us is because we have the keys to their entrance into this dimension which is our free will they need uh that we are their their ticket uh we they can get in here if they can convince somebody to like get in a pentagram and start calling them you know they can do that without having to get in a pentagram they can just do it but and that's 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 what as a side note the occult world is not that uh special it's not that spooky there's not a lot to it uh alistair crowley alice bailey you know all those people it's really not a big deal um they the only thing is is the demons for the most part can't pe- get people to just come right out and start asking for for demons that's a little too radical so what they do is they get well-meaning people to not know what they're doing in asking for demons and that's what a Ouija board is or that's what you know all these things it's just manipulating the human will there should be a catchphrase for that free will manipulation or something something good but anyway so that is that's not very catchy but so meditation is a ground level thing. There's not really anything going on there except for passive will. Now, the passive will would be mostly like um, there wouldn't be much entrance in that. There would be very little, little ability to affect the situation if all you're doing is just saying, "I, I don't." You're not. I'm not necessarily calling anything into existence. I don't. I'm not asking for anything. I just don't. I just don't want to. I just don't want my will. I'm just putting my will down. Um, but uh, even when you do that, there is an opportunity to affect, albeit very, very small, from the demonic realm. And what they do with that opportunity is give you something. They're going to give you a bone. 
throw you a bone. And that bone is going to be some sort of little thing. Maybe you feel really good. Maybe you saw a little something, a little light here or there or whatever. Something to make you think, oh, wow, this works. Wow. That's, no wonder people do this. It works. I think I'm like going to go, I'm like going to be a meditator. I'm going to go like get all the right books and like start shopping at Whole Foods. Okay, I stop. I shop at Whole Foods, but um, when I can afford it. So that's when it really starts because the books are written by people uh, who have been a lot further on than this and that have generally speaking have uh, had uh, influence in writing the books, whichever way it was. Maybe they read other books that were influenced by this, but essentially the books are sort of a stair step and they get a little further in degrees. One will, the next one will be depending on what the person's paradigm is. I mean, they might jump right in, as Russ Dizdar did in his uh, testimony. He he pretty much went from zero to golden Buddha meditation, channeling, uh, you know, channeling ascended masters and stuff like that. That That's usually not what happens. Somebody will then read another book that says, you know, there's a, there's a, a records that you can, you can start to attain knowledge and stuff from out there from the ether, you know, and, there's all this ability, this extra sort of sensory stuff that you can get from meditation. It's not just about relaxation and stuff like that. There's more power to it, essentially. So you then start to be more active and not passive. You start to uh, be essentially looking for something, calling for something, if you will. And that eventually will develop, take shape. The more books you read, the more you start to find out about stuff. Like, well, there's there are these ascended masters out there. And that's sort of where... You know, this information comes from there. People that have achieved enlightenment in the past, speaking from a Buddhist sort of mindset. Uh, and, it, and it has different sorts of, uh, you know, colors, shapes, and forms, depending on the book, depending on whatever. So your situation, don't say, oh, Chris, you don't understand, you know, and maybe I don't, but, but you know, your situation may be quite a bit different or whatever. But it's also probably because there's about a thousand different flavors of the same thing. But it all has to do with manipulating your will, not to get you better or smarter or whatever. So that's what I think about meditation. Okay, moving on to another email. This one kind of ties into that one, actually. It is from a guy in Scotland. He's a really interesting guy. I've talked back and forth with him a few times. And he has written this email here, if I can find it, which is right here. Okay, uh, it says, Then say about three months afterwards, I started to get seriously disturbing dreams, really distraught dreams, so powerful I'd phone up the person who was in my dream when I woke up to see if they were okay. Now, as you know, I'm not a religious person, but I have utter respect for Christianity due to me knowing my history. These dreams, I can only describe them as a negative force. Whether it's a demon, it's a spirit, or a demon in the back of my mind, I don't really care. I just want it out of my head. My bookshelf is filled with all sorts of uh, stuff, including huge amounts of psychology, of which I have used to, used to sharpen and clear my mind. But I feel this is beyond the realms of psychologists and theories. I even tried some hard, solid labor out in my back garden to try to sweat it out. But as I lay on my decking out in the back garden, looking up in the blue sky, listening to Sweet Song by Blur, I decided it was time to try alternative routes. I, alternative by my standards, not by the Ike style of standards. Or not the Ike style of alternative. So here I am asking you to uh, how to go about getting this extremely negative force out of my life. I don't think it's any kind of coincidence that this started happening when I entered the darkest stages of my life. And God, do I know it's dark. I never rely on anyone. And I'm my own man. I always like to slay my own demons with my own hands. But I'm just going to have to be a big boy and ask your opinion and help on this matter. These dreams have me sweating and concerned. 
deeply concerned, but never scared. I am a believer in Carl Jung's shadow work concept, which I find has helped me uh, eliminate the source of this negativity coming from me. It's definitely from outside, inside, via the back door. Okay, so, you know, I did give this person a, a response in, about his particular situation and everything. But what I wanted to talk about here is a few different things. And first, before I get into that, I would also encourage you to pray uh, for this individual if you get the if you get the urging to do so. I think there's a good possibility that this uh, this this event could lead him to Christ, and I bet with your prayers, uh, it would be a very uh, difficult thing for Satan to 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 get a hold of him uh, or to keep a hold of him on this particular situation. But I would suggest to uh, that there is some demonic stuff here, so pray against that in this individual's life as well, uh, as it needs to have sort of an onslaught on it. I think. Um, as as this situation develops, so um, and again and again, we talked a lot about you know Jesus is is essentially the way. And the answer to this 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 person's situation is Jesus. You know, as a non Christian, uh, it has more to do with um, seeking him genuinely uh, at for his help in this matter. That he knows, uh, you know, that that that's the only way. He sort of described a lot of that 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 he has to look to him. Um, of course, I would suggest to him to become a Christian, you know, become a born-again Christian, but without the leading of the Holy Spirit, uh, that might not be possible. But I would suggest that uh, the main thing to do is to start to look to him for your help in this. Uh, and uh, that usually, you know, there's there's lots of different things I, I told him, but, but essentially the answer is Jesus. What I wanted to talk a little bit about is what he mentioned uh, about Carl Jung's shadow work concept and Carl Jung in general, and what may have been going on in this particular situation. Uh, I gathered a little bit from it that, uh, you know, he was trying to deal with this, uh, with uh, with psychology, and particularly Carl Jung. And Carl Jung is, a, is the modern, you know, the father of modern psychology, basically. And a lot of people don't know this about him, but he was uh, the son, his mother was a, a person who channeled spirits. She was... Uh, extremely, uh, he used to say of his own mother that when he would walk by her room, he could feel the evil emanating from her room. And this is also a guy who uh, has a really sordid history himself with this. He actually had what this shadow concept that this person is referring to is Carl Jung in his later life would have what he referred to as his shadows, two of them, uh, he gave names and everything that he would converse with and, and vision states, and they would they helped him write books. He he would have really actual real exper experiences with them, and the interesting thing is that Carl Jung was about as humanistic as possible. I don't know if that's the right word, but what I what I mean by it anyway is that he believed that man was the absolute highest thing that there was, that there was nothing outside of man. Man was God, uh, which is, which sort of shaped his paradigm about these entities that he was talking to. Um, he, that's where he came up with the idea that these were sort of manifestations of certain parts of his personality and that they were kind of like muses. And I say like, and he, he must've thought they were muses because they were telling him to write this stuff and they were telling him how to write it, write this stuff. So from his perspective, he was just doing, 
you know, what he thought was coming from himself. So he could sign his name Carl Jung to that and probably firmly believe that he come, came up with every word and that, and that he was really, really smart. But it was probably just what First Timothy calls the doctrine of demons, or is it Second Timothy? Um, but anyway, it, it, it obviously became essentially that as the father of, uh, of modern psychology. Now, the shadow work concept, although I'm not 100% sure exactly how that, what, what is working but with that, but if it seems to be in the context of this, uh, this gentleman's, uh, 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 email here, that there's some sort of exercising that you can do or containing or, or manipulating of these shadow entities. And what I would probably suggest is, is I bet it's a lot like, uh, what I was talking about earlier with Buddhism. I bet the, the thing in there, the, 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 the rat poison in all the truth, well, there's not a whole lot of truth in that one, but is that you're probably doing something that, that looks a whole lot like summoning when you're doing that. I bet you're saying, oh dear, my shadow, would you please do something or whatever. That's what, that's what it's all about. It's kind of like in Reiki. Um, Reiki is a good example because they have these, in these processes, when you become a Reiki master, you go through the Reiki, what they call attunement process. And this is a lot of smoke and mirrors, and, you're, and there's a lot of drawing these these specific symbols and acting like you're pushing them into somebody's chakra, and it's this big thing, and you got to learn how to do this particular thing. And, and what's interesting about that whole thing is that 99% of that whole thing is completely nonsense and useless. Uh, if you were looking at this from like a Satanist point of view, what a Satanist would see is that right at the beginning, they, uh, a big part is that they have to call on their angels and ask their angels and give them permission to come into their, you know, whatever. They give them, you're invoking your angels. And uh, that is, that's the important part of the, the Reiki attunement process. Your free will giving them the opportunity to come and dwell you. to And then to, of course, you know, do what they always do, which is to throw people a bone, give them some sort of supernatural thing. If that's what they, you gotta, you gotta imagine this with, with demons, they're opportunists. They're listening to you. And like Carl Jung's situation, they knew Carl Jung was, he was, a, he was a, uh, you know, a big shot psychologist thought a lot of himself when they were probably playing along with the shadow concept thing the whole time. Oh yes, we're doing this. Would you please write this down? please, you know, or the, every, everybody, the, the angels of light or whatever in Reiki, they are playing along. They're helping people get healed. They're telling people that where the ailments are, they're leading their hands in the right places and they're, and they're healing people with things that, that, well, things that demons have control over anyway. Um, and they are happy to do so because they're essentially got a good thing going. This person is, is evangelizing, uh, how to get other people to do the exact same thing. Wow, you just healed me. What is this thing that you're doing? It's called Reiki. Oh, yeah, tell me more about it. Yes, let me tell you more about it. And on and on and on. And then what happens is the same old thing. Demons find houses. We see in the Bible so many times uh, that the demons are desperate for houses. The You look at the guy in Mark 5. Mark 5, he was a guy, who knows what that guy was into? Probably some crazy stuff. You know, he was channeling this or doing that thought he was just on, well on the way to being the smartest psychic or whatever in town and here he's got legion of demons in him he is filled to the brim with demons there tort making him torture himself he's just in a really bad mess <clears throat> they they are you know however many demons are in him are there because uh they can't find anywhere else to go 
they said, hey, man, this guy is like, I know that there's a guy over there in the tombs. He's like, well, he's like an open door, man. What's like Anybody can get in there. No big deal. We see in, where is this? Matthew 12, verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through the dry places, seeking rest and finding none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came, came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then he goes and taketh with him several, uh, seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. Uh, so, so Christ is making the point uh, about this wicked generation using uh, this, this analogy from unclean spirits. But we learn a lot about unclean spirits in this. Namely, that they are seeking rest because they are walking through the dry places and finding no rest and they're looking for embodiment and they find rest in somebody's body so this is what they're out there looking for and they have a grand agenda to try to get as many people as possible to give that free will away so that they can do just that so that is not really answering that question but rest assured i did i did answer that individual's question but I didn't uh, answer it here. Just wanted to talk a little bit about Carl Jung and expand on that a little bit. This person was talking about, um, they say, another point I wish I could really use some advice on. I recently heard this guy, Andrew Storm, interviewed on A View from the Bunker with Derek Gilbert. He was uh, showing some parallels with Hindu practices and some charismatic Christian churches. Now, I've seen some of this stuff firsthand at the church that I now attend, uh, where they had a guest minister, and he th and he would touch their head, and they would fall down. One lady was running wildly around the congregation. What is your view on this? Is this of God? Andrew made a documentary showing these similarities. Any uh, words would be appreciated. Okay, and this this video clip is actually pretty interesting, and I didn't hear the show with Derek, but I did uh, watch this video, and it is the the parallels between the sort of People that are shaking violently, barking in the spirit, you know, slain in the spirit, you know, after somebody touches them and all these things do at least appear from this video to, to sort of correspond with some stuff that's being done in, uh, in apparently Hindu practices. And I'd never heard of that before, but that would seem to make sense. Um, I certainly can't find any biblical, uh, you know, support for being slain in the spirit or barking or laughing or jerking around or whatever. So there must be some origin for it. So might as well be Hindu practices. Clearly, I think that something going on there is just, uh, I don't know. You know, I, I want to be careful with some of this stuff because... I don't want to say that, uh, you know, this the gifts of the spirit, etc., supernatural things, etc., you not only do happen, but should be happening in your church. But not, not this, not, not this stuff. And, you know, what I would suggest to the individual who wrote this, uh, is that, you know, and I did suggest this as well, is that sometimes the best thing to do here is to try to get your church to see the error of the way as opposed to looking for another church. I think even if you don't eventually stay, you know, the the work that you can do in sort of resisting the heresy is the best thing that you can do um, in, in contending for it because there's always going to be an attempt to infiltrate the churches with, you know, 
weird doctrine and all kinds of stuff. And it really is not mean, okay, well, weird's weird doctrine, let it take over or whatever. You know, there should be some, some amount of like, um, you know, maybe burning DVDs of this particular video and handing it out to people or whatever. Um, you know, something like that. Something that you sort of have a counterpoint to. Um, I think that some of this stuff is getting well out of hand and I'm glad that, uh, that, uh, Derek had, had this individual on. It sounds like it was pretty, pretty straight up from what I could see. So, uh, that would be my view on that stuff. I think that, and I used to, uh, totally, I used to think that the Trinity Broadcasting stuff was real, you know, and Benny Hinn and all that stuff. Um, my mom worked at Trinity Broadcasting. They, they have a headquarters here in Hendersonville, Tennessee. And so she used to be the gift shop manager over there. And, uh, you know, I thought it stuff was, that stuff was, I don't know what to think about it really, but I thought that it was interesting. I thought that they were normal Christians, you know, but now looking back on it, it was like, wow, that was, um, that was a lot of people in the world that like sort of believed that sort of what, what life was like in the Christian world, that there was all this sort of supernatural mysticism that came a part of it. And, you know, it's like no use for that mysticism. It's just like, Hey, everybody come get drunk off the, off the bar of me, you know, this, this apostle, oh man, it's just insane. I won't go too much into it right now because I haven't really studied for uh, a response in that in that way. So, but what I have thought a little bit about is the last point that I'll be making, I think, depending on how long we've got. Yeah, probably the last point that I'll make is a really good question that um, why did Jesus have to be baptized? And I've been doing a study of Luke with uh, my fiance, which I recommend doing if you get a chance to, um, doing a Bible study with your uh, with your uh, spouse or girlfriend or whatever boyfriend, if they're hip to it. Here's here's a suggestion. I didn't really grow up. I don't know anything about Bible studies. How to do Bible studies? I don't know. How do you even work that? I don't know. But but here's the trick. Um, go listen to. Uh, let's say I've been listening to um, on this particular one. A guy named uh, Stephen Anderson, who I think it's verse by verse Bible Ministry dot com. Anyway, he's one of the big. If you look, type in verse by verse Bible teaching or something like that, he he'll be um, he'll be on there, number one or something like that. He's really good. I have him linked on on our site. If you go to verse by verse Bible teaching dot com, on the right side there, there's a list of all kinds of verse by verse people that I like a lot. And if you listen to any one of those, maybe like for instance, he has three hours on just Luke three alone. And I kind of look at it as a really loose thing. I'm not taking notes. I'm just listening to him, sort of listening to him talk about Luke. Uh, well, actually, I'm Luke, Luke chapter four is when he's got three three of them that I'm listening right now. And um, it's really cool because then when you go and have this Bible study, you just sort of read down the list and you talk about some of the things that you've got all this information now, you know, and it's like made this chapter that, you know, I used to think I knew about, Hey, here's the Christmas story, right? I have heard about, heard this a million times. And all of a sudden there's like, you know, all this truth and depth and clarity and stuff that I would have never even thought or never saw in my whole life. And, you know, it really brings up this just really fruitful discussion and everything. But one of the things that I found out that I thought was pretty interesting, and I didn't get this from him. I ended up, uh, listening to a few different uh, commentators before uh, we did Luke chapter 3, where Jesus is baptized. And 
Well, first of all, John the Baptist was an interesting character. One of the things that he did was sort of play the role that the Holy Spirit now plays, which is gets people ready to be saved. He sort of convicts them of their sins. You know, if the Holy Spirit's really working on you, you're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I, I am a sinner before like God and, and you know you start to see all the reality of it the reality of your sin and the holiness of God and your need for salvation and, you know that's what's missing in a lot of modern day conversion experiences is there's no um, you know no conviction of the Holy Spirit of your sins now that's exactly what John did here's an interesting thing that he says um, he says bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance and and begin not to say within yourselves we have Abraham to our father for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So first he's telling them, don't appeal to your, you know, your Jewishness. I mean, as mo most Jewish people did, it's like, well, you know, we're the chosen people, we got it covered. He's like, no, don't, don't, don't worry about that. God can, God can raise up stones to be children of Ab Abraham. And he says, and now also the axe is laid upon the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? They're getting, you know, convicted of sin, their sins. And he answers and said unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. He that hath meat, let him do likewise. He that came to the publicans and baptized them, said unto them, Master, what shall we do? And it goes on like this. Um, so, the interesting thing here that I want you to notice is that John's baptism, as he begins to baptize people, is all about, um, is about washing them of their sins, a kind, a kind of... Uh, symbol, because it really isn't a symbol of baptism in the Old Testament per se. Uh, this is more than likely what what it was representing, because it certainly didn't represent the idea of um, you know Jesus's death and resurrection at that time for John's baptism. So the question is then, why did Jesus have to be baptized? Uh, interesting that first before I get into that 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 John's like whole ministry was about you know convicting people of sins, you know. He was very aware in his ministry that this was about the sin that they were all sort of, um, you know, needed to repent from. And I think that's why when John saw Jesus and he recognized who he was, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. I mean, it was kind of like John's whole thing. It was on his mind probably constantly, the sins of the world. And, you know, it's interesting because at that time, you know, even in, in Jesus's ministry, that was not a well-known thing. Even his, you know, closest disciples, the apostles, <laughs> did not really understand that Jesus was going to take the sin of the world, take away the sin of the world. They thought he was going to just like, you know, uh, conquer and rule. Uh, they had vague ideas that he would you know, say these cryptic things about how he would have to die and stuff like that. But they didn't really even understand that till later. But John, when he saw him, the minute he saw him, was like, behold. The Lamb of God, who's going to take away the sins of the world. Who taketh away the sins of the world. Okay. Um, but anyway, so why did Jesus have to be baptized if this was about sin? If it was about washing away of sin, which is all that we can tell that it was about. It certainly wasn't about his being, you know, he didn't need to be, uh, to, to uh, be buried with Christ and, and raised with Christ. He was going to do that later on. Um, the answer well, let me let me first read the discourse that John has in Matthew because Luke doesn't really give a great account of this. It just sort of gives the matter of factly. Uh, doesn't even mention this conversation. So it says in Matthew chapter three, it says, "Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Suffer it to be so now." 
For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him, and Jesus was baptized, and went up straight away out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened uh, unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, from whom I am well pleased. So there is the Trinity present at that moment. But um, the main question is, why, why did, as uh, Christ said, why does it have to become them to fulfill all righteousness in this baptism? Well, the answer is found, interestingly enough, in Exodus. Um, Exodus 21. No, excuse me, Exodus 29. And it starts in verse 1, where it says, Okay, it says, And this is the thing that thou shalt do unto them to hallow them, to minister unto me in the priest's office. Okay, so this is actually Aaron's sons. This is going to be how you consecrate a, a high priest. Um, but first it does something that, that Jesus doesn't do, which is a sin offering. It goes into a few verses of, of take one of young bullock and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread and cakes and unleavened tempered with oil and wafers. And it describes a sin offering. Now, Jesus did not need a sin offering. But the other things, uh, it does seem that he need he needed, or at least this is what he did. He said, "It says, and Aaron and his sons shall bring unto the door of the tabernacle. Oh, excuse me, and Aaron and his sons, thou shalt bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shalt wash them with water. And the next thing that they need to do is, um, let's see here, verse six, and thou shalt put the mitre upon his head." And put the holy crown upon the mitre. Thou shalt take the anointing oil and pour it upon his head and anoint him. So those are the two things that, uh, three things, I guess, if you count this in offering, um, that you need to do. And we see that Jesus got washed with water and immediately anointed uh, with the Holy Spirit. And so that is uh, the consecration of Jesus as high priest. This is the beginning of his ministry. He began uh, his priesthood on that day. So that is that is why Jesus had to be baptized. And it just goes to show you the Bible is like this thing that is like way too smart for any of us. And no matter what we think we know about it, we don't. And whenever you see those verses that are too hard to figure out or... Jesus is a good example. Jesus, like most of the stuff that Jesus said was like, what? I mean, it, it's it, it's because it's 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 so smart. Um, most of the stuff that he said, you have to like go flip, you know, figure it out. Like, oh my gosh, you're like digging up this treasure just to figure out what he meant. Every time you see anything in that, like the Bible, in the Bible, where it just you're kind of scratching your head and it's like, what does that even mean? Uh, not not because you don't understand the the you know the culture or the vocabulary word or something like that, but when you understand all of that stuff, but you still don't understand what it means, I encourage you to go find out. Go read what commentators have to say about it. Type in commentaries. Type in uh, you know figure it out. Get eSword and uh, you know really dig into it because there's always just below the surface a discovery that's waiting to be made. So. Um, I hope that encourages you. If you have any questions, you can write to me and go to my website, which is nowheretorunradio.com. Hope to see you there.